Hi, welcome to the Book of Medora podcast, the podcast where we discuss the lore and fiction of the Legend of Zelda series. I'm Cameron, and with me today is Monica. Hello. And as you may have noticed, Crystal's not hosting the podcast. She couldn't join us for the recording today. Hopefully she'll be back soon. Uh, That's pretty much it. So I guess we are going to be floundering a little bit since she usually lends this podcast its structure, but we're going to do our best. We're going to forget every instance of required plugging of the email. Oh, no. No, I, I don't think so. I think we'll do okay. We'll do okay for that part. One thing about this is that because we respond to each other in real time, listeners may notice that there's a little bit less or a little bit more of a gap when it comes to how we respond to each other. Because us being able to respond naturally to each other means that I don't have to edit the silences out as much. You're still going to edit out the silences. Oh, it depends on how bad the silences get. Because, I mean, if it's just a natural flow of conversation, then it's fine. And sometimes silences are funny, but it's not really something that you can preserve very easily in a sound file that has more than one source. Cameron? Yes? It's weird talking to you without looking at you while recording only with you. Yeah, I know. It's easier for us to focus on the screen as if the screen represented Crystal, but she's not with us, so we can't do that. Anyway, we're talking about what's going on in Twilight Princess and the lore arising from some key situations within it. Now, as I remember, last time we left off with Zelda passing on some essential power from herself to Midna and then disappearing. The Triforce. Yeah, well, yeah, it's the Triforce, but, you know, I don't think they... Was it was it shown on her hand when she passed over? Yes. Oh, okay. Well, see, I forgot. I'm not... You left it vague as if she gifted, like, the goddessness. No, 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 no. I didn't mean no. Okay, no. But anyway, before she did that, she did tell Link and Midna that they needed to go find the Master Sword, right? Yes. Okay. Did she mention where it was? Yes. It's in the woods. She does mention that. Yeah, that's right. She does mention that it's uh, in the woods. And then Midna says that they have to find the Mirror of Twilight. But first, Link needs to go to the Farren Woods and get the Master Sword to break the curse that is upon him. And D-Wolf. Yes, D-Wolf, because wolf is a verb in this context. So, Link hops his merry ass on over to the Farren Woods, and Farren Woods is a little bit different this time. Um, What is it that allows you to go into the different section of Farren Woods exactly? Nothing other than... The realization that it's there, Midna will help you jump over, I think. Is that it? There aren't, like, monkeys helping you across a particular gap? You do meet monkeys midway. 
Okay, so Minda's like, no, we have to go this way this time. And she does her little hee-hee-hee jump over toward me thing. And Link crosses the gap in the Feron Woods to go into what is basically the Lost Woods. Yes. Is it called the Lost Woods? We can look this up. Well, I mean, I'm looking at it now, but it doesn't seem so. This is just a script. Like, they only transcribe the speech. Okay, that's fair. Also, that's not true. MGoBlue201 likes transcribing a lot of things that aren't just speech. I'm not meaning the square brackets part. Those are firmly... Okay, they don't call it the Lost Woods, I don't think, but you're running around chasing Skull Kid, who looks very strange in this one. He's very different from the Skull Kid that we know from Ocarina of Time, though it is heavily implied that he is the same character. Um... So you're chasing around Skull Kid in a place where Saria Song is playing. It's the Lost Woods. Yes. Is there anything in particular I need to know about this? There is a Howling Stone here. Oh, there is a Howling Stone. That's right. You learn Zelda's Lullaby, I think. Zelda's Lullaby? I think so. When you say learn, what do you mean? You wolf it. <laughs> uh, this is a different kind of wolf verb. Now wolf doesn't mean become wolf. Wolf means... Howling without tune. That's okay. Okay. What's the difference between tune and tone? A tune is a melody. Right, but can you make a melody without tones? Because Wolf Link is tone deaf. Does that mean he's also tuneless? Oh. No. I'd say tone deaf people can vaguely work out a tune. Uh huh. It's just not very tuned. This is the stupidest conversation <laughs> we've had so far. And what? I'm going to have to cut this part out. Um, okay, so you're chasing Skull Kid through the Lost Woods. And this is kind of an interesting sequence in and of itself, just for the fact that Skull Kid is still around. Skull Kid apparently is immortal. And this isn't just Skull Kid from Ocarina of Time, though, that he recognizes. I think there's a line where he recognizes Link as resembling an old friend. I think. This is the moment we pause and look it up. There's two instances of Skull Kid. Yeah, there's two instances of Skull Kid. He doesn't do it here. But anyway, this is on the uh, Majora's Mask timeline, so to speak. So it's not just the Skull Kid from Ocarina. It's probably the Skull Kid from Majora's Mask who has been through some shit. And the fact that Skull Kid now acts as a guardian of the sacred grove where the Master Sword is kept is interesting. Why do you think he stuck around? That's a good question. Um, I was really hoping you would have some thoughts on this. But I think maybe it had something to do with just his friendship with Link from back in the day. Like the Master Sword being laid to rest there, he probably recognizes how important that sword is. Actually... There's a question for you. Why is the Master Sword in the Lost Woods? Zelda put it there. When? Sometime after Link died. Do you think that he was carrying it when he fought Ganondorf? If he didn't, he made a big mistake. Okay, yeah, granted. I mean, I, I, I guess I just sort of assumed that if he had had the sword, he might have beaten Ganon? So you think Link put it there? It's a thought, but I mean, Zelda could have just as easily towed it, I guess. 
This, if this had happened in the adult timeline rather than the child timeline, I would have assumed that Zelda put it there as part of her big, complicated plans for the future that Ocarina of Time Zelda keeps, like, having her fingers in all the fucking pies. Oh, I'm going to discuss more later, I guess, about why I think it's Zelda. Oh, okay. Well, does it involve information that we get later? Just in a minute. Oh, okay. You oh, play yeah, yeah, Zelda's yeah, 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 I remember, I remember. Okay. Um... So you get through all this and Skull Kid is playing on a trumpet now instead of an ocarina and he toots on little horns and these marionettes attack you and to get rid of the marionettes you have to do uh, Wolf Link's area attack on them to get rid of them all at once. Maybe Skull Kid is just functionally immortal. I guess that makes sense. Is he the only one who's functionally immortal? Or do you think that there's more of them still in the woods? Because there was a bunch of them in Ocarina of Time. I think they may just all be functionally immortal. But Uh, we only really see this one. But that would explain how he hung out with the giants at the beginning of Majora's Mask. Are the Skull Kids kind of an offshoot of the Kokiri? Yes. They're forest spirits in the same sense. Uh-huh. Uh, so the reason that we never see them in some of the later games is that Skull Kids are also Koroks. Oh, that's cute. That's a thought. Maybe. Because if they're forest spirits, most forest spirits in later games like Breath of the Wild seem to be Koroks. No Deku Scrubs, no Skull Kids, no Kokiri, just Koroks. Everyone Koroks. But Deku Tree didn't say that he turned anything else into Koroks. Yeah, he said Children of the Forest, right? In Wind Waker? Oh, okay. They are kids. Yeah. Of the forest. Right. It's just interesting that they are like a more mischievous version of the Kokiri, and based on later games in the series, maybe we can take that in different directions. Can we take a moment to talk about the Howling Stones? Yeah, yeah, no problem. So there's seven, and five of them involve, well... Four of them involve previously occurring melodies. Uh-huh. Um, that being the Song of Healing, the Requiem of Spirit, the Prelude of Light, and Zelda's Lullaby. Right. One of them is clearly the theme of Twilight Princess. Uh-huh. And two are just made up. So, um, Twilight Princess has at least two instances of the game's soundtrack existing within the context of the game itself where Midna hums her own theme song and there's this here where the hero's shade apparently wrote the theme of Twilight Princess. That didn't occur to me, but I guess so. I mean, that's... The stones... Did we ever get an explanation of what the Howling Stones are? No. They kind of look like Sheikah stones. They look like Sheikah stones, but they are spiritually linked to the hero of time. Yes. Do you think maybe he made them with somebody's help? or Maybe. It seems like he's probably behind the construction of them, but that would also suggest that he wrote the theme to Twilight Princess. <laughs> so every time you boot the game up, you're getting a version of the song that maybe he would have liked to hear. I don't know. Just throwing that out there. He's a well. He's a musical guy. He is. He's, so you know, he's it's probably, one of the 
at least three songs he's written. Yeah, this is before they abandoned the idea of Link as a musical character. And Ocarina of Time Link was definitely the most musical of all the Links. This was also a sign for Timeline people that Twilight Princess belonged after Majora's Mask. Because of the Song of Healing. Yes. All right. I almost... I think by that point, we had stopped in most large-scale timeline arguments. So I never actually thought about the presence of the Song of Healing in that sense. But it does... That is a good indicator that this is on the child timeline, as if everything else wasn't already. Right. Huh. One thing to notice when... um, when Wolf Link is transported to the ethereal realm where the Howlfest happens. Howlfest. Is that you are kind of situated in this plane of existence and you kind of see a few landmarks around Hyrule. And one of them is clearly Kokiri Forest. One of them is Death Mountain. One of them is the castle. Um... But another one is the Arbiter's Grounds. The Arbiter's Grounds. So yeah. all the other ones that you refer to are locations in Ocarina of Time. Yes. Which sort of implies that the Arbiter's Grounds were also a location... Because this is the Kokiri Forest, not Farron Woods. And Well, it's like a very woodsy place. It's hard to really figure it's out It's probably the Kokiri Forest. Yeah. So... I'd like to say they were significant locations in Ocarina of Time Link's past or experience. That would be pretty significant if he was involved with what went down at the Arbiter's Grounds. Though I don't know if the text of the game actually indicates that one way or the other. It doesn't. No. Okay. Well, I figured it probably wouldn't. I forgot my water. Okay. Go get your water. Uh, I'll just keep going over here. Yeah. Why not? Or I can wait for you to get back. Yes. Jerk. Okay. The, the theme of Twilight Princess, uh, the scene for that one is at the castle. Mm, mm. That's interesting. Well, I mean, the castle is probably where he died. Or it's at the least where he's buried. Yes. Though we'll get into that uh, closer to the end of the game. I hope that I can find a video that'll show me somebody following the line of ghosts there. Anyway, uh, we've gotten pretty badly off track. So Link follows Skull Kid and the sound of his playing, which is very reminiscent of a similar sequence back in Ocarina of Time. And eventually he finds his way to the Sacred Grove. And Skull Kid is like, well, you made it here. See you later. And he just disappears after throwing like 30 more puppets at you. This wasn't a very fun sequence. Well, no. It It was kind of magical, but like then you get annoyed. Yeah. Yeah, I could see that. Because you had to find where Skull Kid was standing around in any of the many, many different rooms. In this particular version of the Lost Woods, the Lost Woods is basically uh, disparate rooms that are connected by corridors, and you can sometimes follow the sound of Skull Kid's playing, but sometimes it's not completely reliable for reasons that I don't really remember. 
but it can take a while to find him, and you have to fight your way up to him, and you have to fight your way up to him while getting pummeled by all these marionettes, and then he runs off to the next section, and there's no way to make this go any faster. And you get the hoot, and then... More. Milli- <laughs> yeah, and then the hee hee hee. Oh, yeah, it was just nonstop of that, until you get to the end, and you have to fight like 30 more of them, and it's over, and he's like, okay, see ya, bye, and then... It's like, Midna, it's interesting because Midna has nothing in particular to say about the Skull Kid, even though it is easily one of the strangest sequences in the game. They really should have had her say something. Like, who the hell was that? What's going on here? Why is it like this when we're just trying to get something that is both powerful and good? These are all questions Midna could have asked, but did not. It's almost like she wasn't written to be aware that Skull Kid was there. Like, the two parts... Like, the part where you interact with Minna and the part where you interact with Skull Kid were made separately and then kind of stuck together. It gives that impression. Well, now that I think of it, she never reacts to all of the howling sequences. Ah. So maybe she doesn't even experience them. Now, I would believe that with regards to the howling sequences. Like, it's mostly just going on inside Link's brain and he's having, like... Uh, an out-of-body experience, as it were. But I don't know if that... That wouldn't really extend to what's going on with Skull Kid. Maybe Link just sees him and chases him around, and Minna's like, why are you jumping in the air like eight times? It would be good if she said that, though. Also, those marionettes are real, and they can take away all your hearts, and you can die. Fair enough. Yeah. And you can use her to attack, I guess. Yeah, she totally points them out with her hair. And Okay. So you get to the Sacred Grove, and I forget, do you need to go back in time with the Sacred Grove, or is that just for the Temple of Time? Just for the Temple of Time. Okay. so There are two guardians here. Yeah, at, there's like this big door that's being guarded by two statues. They kind of look like Starmen. They do look like Starmen from the Nintendo RPG game Earthbound on the Super <laughs> Famicom. <laughs> Um, they, the guardians are activated by Zelda's lullaby. And so they were clearly placed to protect the master sword by Zelda or a royal family member. Right. Because Zelda's lullaby is the sign of the royal family. Yes. Did you have more to say about it or are you having trouble reading your writing? I'm having trouble reading my writing. Clears the thorn. I don't remember any thorns um, in that no, sequence. No. Oh, that's just the Master Sword. Sorry. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So after Link does um, a puzzle that is either going to be a breeze for you, the player, or a complete fucking nightmare for you, the player. Which one was it for you? It was mostly fine. Um, if Occasionally I, you get jumped on. <laughs> yeah. If I remember, the way that it worked is that you had this, what was it, a uh, 3 by 3 or 4 by 4 grid. And you had to put them in particular places. But anywhere you moved, one of the statues would move in the same direction as you and the other would move in the opposite direction? Yes. Okay. And you had to move them both to particular places. And it was it difficult in parts. So we get to the end, we get past this sequence, and they're like, okay, you're cool enough to go through the door, and you go through the door, and the Master Sword is there. And they don't do the whole thing where Midna talks about it like the announcer on a game show, so it's a little bit different from Ocarina of Time. But 
Link walks up to it, and as he's reaching for it with his teeth, I guess, he gets bathed in the Master Sword's Holy Radiance, which is super powerful and pushes him back because he's anchored onto that shard of fused twilight magic that's in his skull. And he gets real mad and roars at the Master Sword as it blasts the darkness out of his body. And then, because he's aggressive enough for the Master Sword to recognize his manliness, he turns back into a person. Is that what happens? Yeah, he does actually bare his teeth at the Master Sword. I thought that was just the effort of staying up. No, I don't think so. Hold on. We're going to do a thing. He totally roars at the Master Sword. Yes, but I didn't (laughs) interpret it as him being manly. Listen, he does that to everything in this game. It just seems like the wind is blowing very strongly. Yeah, the wind is blowing real strongly. And then his response is to literally roar. With the effort of staying up. Wolves don't even roar. But he does. Because he's really tough. And then he has the sword lifting sequence. Yeah, he has the really cool sword lifting sequence. And Midna's all like, ooh, that's cool. And now that Midna is holding the shard of Twilight Stone that was jammed into his head, now he can transform freely back and, tor- back and forth between wolf and human form whenever he wants. And I think that you could make an argument that since this is the integration of the last really major mechanic of the game, that in some ways this is the actual end of the tutorial. No! No, I mean, like... Yes. Th- this actually opens up the world for you to explore. You can warp now. You can warp now. You can run around as a wolf. You can do all sorts of things that you couldn't do before. It's like here, when you get the Master Sword, in many senses, is when the game like, achieves its final form, so to speak. I wouldn't say the end of a tutorial. That's kind of stretching yeah. it. Yes, but when Crystal gets to this part when listening to it, she'll appreciate the sentiment. Okay. Midna does recognize that the thorn is magic that is different from her tribe's shadow magic. Ooh. Let's see here. The sword accepted you as its master. This thing is the embodiment of the evil magic that Zant cast on you. It's definitely different from our tribe's shadow magic. Yeah, that's exactly what she says. Is there anything else you wanted to say about this particular scene? Nope, that's it. Okay. So from here, it's determined that they need to find the Mirror of Twilight. Yes. Now, um, an interesting note here is that this is another facet of the question of how did Minda get into Hyrule in the first place. Um, Minda doesn't know where the Mirror of Twilight actually is. So it becomes a thing where you have to try to find the Mirror of Twilight. She does know where it is, doesn't she? She, I don't think so. Oh, no, she doesn't. Sorry. Yeah. She asks Zelda. She asks Zelda. Yeah, she does ask Zelda to tell Link where to find the Mirror of Twilight. And then at the end of the Master Sword sequence, she also says, Can you help me find something called the Mirror of Twilight? It's interesting because this is also the scene in which the way that Midna treats Link changes very perceptibly from the start of the game once he comes into his own and he's carrying around this cool sword Minna asks him for help rather than demanding it 
So she's in the dairy part of the Sundari. No, no. The the Sun part of the dairy. Why has it got to be like this? Why has everything got to be in terms of anime personality archetypes? She is, though. No. I can't remember which one is the the nice to you phase. I think it's dairy. Okay. Yeah, but why is it got? Why is it everything got to be viewed through that lens? This one because it helps our understanding. Okay, but one of the things about Sundari is that they go back and forth between them. You know, like it doesn't the, have to. She's like over the, it. Like the prickly. I think we're more argumentative without Crystal here. I don't think that's necessarily true, but it does make for a funny point when I say that after you assert it. Ugh. Anyway. You can go talk to the friends of Hyrule. You can. Go, why do you keep calling them the friends of Hyrule? I like that. Okay, that's fair. Anyway, you can go talk to the Resistance, and they're hanging out at Telma's Bar. Does Mena tell you to go to Telma's Bar? There has to be something indicating that you, you should go there. You can see here, there's, the postman gives a letter. Oh, yes, 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 yes. The postman does give you a letter, and it's from Telma. And Telma's like, hey, you should come over to the bar. And then you go over to Telma's bar back in Hyrule Castle Town, and she's like, hey, Link, how you been doing? You made it. You're alive. That's great. Uh, Listen, how's Ilya doing? Everything is still bad, huh? Okay, that's not good. But you should go meet Aru at Lake Hylia. He has something that I'm sure you'll want to talk to him about. In the meantime, you can go talk to the others. Shad calls you old boy. What? When is it? What? Hold on. Oh, God. Oh, that's Shad horrible. is just Gatsby from The Great Gatsby. Is that what's going on? Well, Gatsby used it as a, an affectation to pretend to be rich. Oh, I see. Well, to pretend to be old rich. Oh, because he's the nouveau riche. Yes. Okay. This is all very doofy. And Shad is a fuckboy. <laughs> I don't get that part, but okay. We're not big on Shad on this podcast. He's whatever. Yeah, he's... This is when Shad talks about the Oka. Oh, yes, 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 yes. Okay, um, this is a particular part. Of... God, I wish Crystal was here for this conversation. Um, okay, this is a particular part of... Of the lore of Twilight Princess that was a thorn in the understanding of the larger Zelda canon for a very long time and in certain corners of the fandom remains so because it, a lot of people let let's read it first Shad's talking to you about the particulars of the studying that he's doing at the moment I'm absolutely entranced by the sky beings known as the Uka. Yes, according to legend, Hyrule was made by the Hylians, who, as we all know, are the closest race to the gods. Who says that, Shad? Citation needed. But also according to legend, long ago there was a race even closer to the gods, and some say these creatures made the Hylians. When they created the people of Hylia... Shad... When they created the people of Hylia, they simultaneously created a new capital, a city that floated in the heavens. They dwelt there, and some scholars believe that this race lives there still, somewhere in the great sky. Sky beings, isn't that simply marvelous, old boy? Pip pip. What I wouldn't give to meet them. The pip pip was an addition. 
This is a seriously weird goddamn conversation that's doubly weird in the context of how the fans treated it. Because, one, it's weirdly racist nonsense in canon. That's the key thing that fans trip over. This is all wrong, and it's supposed to be hilariously wrong. Hyrule was made by the Hylians. Maybe... There is a version of this in another language where what Chad says is that Hyrule was founded by the Hylians, which, you know, that's fine. But the version that we're reading right here, the English version that was released in English and is the basis for the canon understanding that we have of this game, has Shad saying that the Hylians created Hyrule as if that is the origin story of the world. Because the Hylians are the people closest to the gods. Fuck you, Shad. <laughs> You, oh, you weird. Yeah. That ain't good. You get out of here. And then he goes on to describe the the Uka and then how they created the people of Hylia. And then you're like... People of Hylia. <laughs> also, funnily enough, I guess Hylia wasn't even a thing back then. No. So nobody identified that as the goddess Hylia. Yeah, maybe the idea was originally for Hylia to be like the region. Or, like, the name of the continent? Maybe the, the translator thought that Hylia was the name of the land itself upon which Hyrule was situated. Like, Hyrule is the rule of Hylia, the dominion over that land. I guess, but now it's just really funny. Now it's really weird. The Uka created the people of Hylia. And it's like, I beg your fucking <laughs> pardon. That doesn't make any sense. Also, how do you know the word Hylia? Where do the gods play into this? Who do you think the gods are exactly? It's a very interesting conversation because it doesn't make any sense and it should be readily ignored by everyone. Fucking Shad. Piece of shit. Ugh. He never does anything important that's good on his own. Uh, okay. And then he asked if you want to hear that shit again. <laughs> and then he said if you don't. Good. I, I, I actually like the bit where you say, no, I don't want to hear it again. And he goes, are you quite sure? I don't mind. Really? <laughs> and you're like, fuck you, Shad. And off you go. And you can also talk to Shay. You can talk to Russell. Uh, let's see what Russell says here. Hold on. Hold on, Shay. Don't jump ahead. Ashay talks about why she's so stoically cool. Because she was taught to be a tough knight, and she's taught to be a tough knight instead of having manners, because girls can only exist on one side of that spectrum or the other. I guess. She grew up in the mountains. Do you think... No, it's not Snow Peak, I don't think. Yeah, she specifically says that Snow Peak is like no mountain she's ever known. Right. So I guess maybe she lived on Death Mountain back when Hylians lived on it? Before it became volcanically active and all this shit started happening? That doesn't make sense. No, it doesn't. Another snowy mountain that isn't that distinctive. Actually, she doesn't say snowy. No, she doesn't. Okay, maybe she lived on Death Mountain with the Gorons. <laughs> yeah, I'm thinking that she probably lived on Death Mountain because Hylians used to come and go back and forth on it a lot. And there aren't that many major mountains in Hyrule and Twilight Princess. I mean, it could be another mountain that we never see. That's just as easy an explanation, but it's the only one we see that really fits. Okay, Russell. And she tells you, don't go near Snow Peak for a while. The game doesn't want you there yet. <laughs> How about you go talk to Aru down at Lake Hylia? Hint, yeah. hint. <laughs> yeah. Why didn't they let you just progress anywhere here? 
Um, because you need dungeon items. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah, you forgot that particular part of the series. I forgot. Yeah. Some of the games are more open than others. Ocarina of Time, there's two places where you can branch off and do either the Fire Temple or Water Temple and the Spirit Temple or Shadow Temple first. But Twilight Princess doesn't have anything like that. you got to do them in the set order, period. Yep. And get And if you don't like it, get bent. Which is fine, I guess. So yeah, you could talk to Russell. What does Russell say? Well, he surprises you here, right? Surprises Russell. Assuming that you haven't talked to him up to this point. I don't think you can talk to him up to this point. He just gives you dots. Ellipses. Is it just ellipses? I think. I am almost sure. Yeah, I'm almost sure that you can actually talk to him before this. We talked about it in a previous episode. Like he's really relieved when you tell him the kids are okay. Is that's here? No. No. Okay, search. I can't find it in the script, but I swear we talked about this in a previous episode, where you can tell him about what's going on with the kids, and he explained like he's the one who says that they're the resistance. Like you can you, you I. This is before you leave Telma's bar with Ilya that you can have the first conversation with Russell. Like, you go into this bar three times up to this point as a human. Okay. I'm almost sure about this, and I will look it up later. Just not right this minute. Okay. Somebody's going to point out the clip where I point this out in a previous episode, and I've promptly forgotten. It's going to be me who does it. That sucks. I know. Don't put in the clip where I say it. (laughs) I will not. He made an expression, and he's (laughs) winking now. At the microphone? Yes. Just so that the listeners can see it. Okay, you have to put in a sound effect, though. What kind of sound effect? I don't know. Okay, well, anyway, I probably actually won't go to all the bother, but I think that that definitely does happen, and that's why he doesn't ask... About You can see that uh, Aru mentions sorry about the rudeness in the bar the other day. Maybe this is an earlier part of the script. Well, no, I don't think so. This is when he goes and sees the children in Kakariko Village, so he knows that they're no, fine. I mean, go to the next point. I guess not. Okay, never mind. Anyway, Russell talks to you about how he went and he saw the kids in Kakariko Village... And Colin seems like he's doing fine, and he thanks you for being a good big brother to Colin and making sure that the kids are safe, and so on and so forth. Here's how we know that he's been in communication with his wife, probably by mail. Yes. The mailman has come to you at this point. He's how you know to go to the bar. No, I mean, Russell has been using the mail. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. That they introduced the concept of the mail through the mailman, and then it turns out, oh, other people use the mail. Yes. That's cute. Yes, it is cute. It is also good that he decided to get word to his wife about where he was and communicated with her about what's going on with both Colin and Link and the other children. Um, Even though he's running off being a big piece of shit when his wife is at home, like, double pregnant and really in need of some care. The village will take care of her. Hopefully. Probably. They're all worthless. But he's, he's working towards, like, you know, first to find the children... Link then, found the children long time ago. Yeah. So after you talk to Russell, then there's really nothing else for you to do except go to Lake Hylia. I mean, you can do a lot of stuff in town now that you can run around freely as a person. There's many games that you can do. You can meet this game's equivalent of Tingle, I think. 
though you can't really complete his game until you get the claw. Wait, well, you have the claw shot. So you can do the first couple of levels of the, what was it called in this game? The All-Star? Star. Star game. What do you think STAR stands for? I have no idea. Is the acronym explained? No, I don't think so. Okay, so the STAR game is run by a guy named Perlo. And he just says STARS really loud. And I forget what it is. Early on, isn't it like a can shooting game? Or is it always the one where you have to like zip around with the claw shot collecting rupees? It was closed for a while. Uh, well, maybe it's not open yet, even. You can, I think that's before you get the claw shot. You can go around and I think overhear him as Wolf Link and he's like, hey, 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 I'm going to make a fortune. I suppose because it's a very hard game and who has double claw shots? No one. Is there anything else you want to mention about this before we get to Lake Hylia? No. Okay. So we go to Lake Hylia. And Lake Hylia is weird in this particular sequence because uh, you meet Aru, who's not Raru, he's Aru, very different. And he's in communication with an old pal of his who's basically a clown. Or there's two clowns here, and they're setting up... One of them has a cuckoo flying game at the top of Lake Hylia where you fly through a bunch of rupee symbols and get actual rupees. And that's a very difficult mini game, depending on how good you are at flying around with cuckoos. Because of landing at the the top platform, you have to that land rotates so perfectly, and it moves, and it's really hard to tell where you're going to be. I have hit that platform and then accidentally jumped off more than once. I feel like crying. Yeah. So, Aru tells you that if you're going to the Gerudo Desert, and honestly, why wouldn't you be? You're going to need the help of a big-ass cannon. You should read out this part, I think. When you're talking to Aru at Lake Hylia, you get a little bit of direction, and it sounds like this. Now, you being a courageous youth, you've likely heard of the strange events in the desert and come to investigate, no? Or am I mistaken? You do know, don't you, Master Link? The Gerudo Desert once held a prison built to hold the worst criminals this land has ever known. The criminals who were sentenced to death were sent directly to the underworld by a cursed mirror that was kept in the prison. Now that prison is condemned, and even the road leading to the desert is impassable. This desert at world's end, it still holds the cursed mirror and the malice of the doomed inmates. These old bones know that the evil currently plaguing Hyrule is related to this wicked place, so I have come to learn the truth. Master Link, I must ask, what will you do now? And of course, Link is going to go. Aru's senses are really good. Yeah. Because nothing really, I, I suppose the road going to the desert must like might have collapsed recently or gotten blocked recently. But there isn't really anything going on in the desert. Yeah. I <laughs> See, the interesting thing here is not that he has good senses. It's that... I mean, do we... Uh, how far into the recording are we? Well, I'll have to cut out a little bit of this, but we might get through most of the... Like, we could get through the Arbiter's Grounds. Yeah. That's in my list. But um, the thing is that... The Arbiter's Grounds, which is the prison that he's referring to, wasn't 
really a prison for people, or at least it wasn't just that. It wasn't a place where people were sent to be executed. It was a holy place. And it was clearly a place of worship for the Gerudo. That's what it was initially. Yeah, and there were things there that were so bad they like couldn't be sent through the Mirror of Twilight, or they, like, we'll talk about it a little bit when we get to the thing itself, but Aru's words here kind of betray, I think, the Hylian perspective on the Gerudo and their culture. Yes, because we don't know about anyone who is imprisoned there aside from Ganondorf. Yeah, well, I mean, we know for a couple. Well, no, and then another yeah, two. Yeah, that guy. But in recent memory, yeah, there's only one. Yeah. And only one of those was sent to the underworld. And this is another case where the Twilight Realm is referred to as being the world of the dead. Very concretely in this case. Yes. Which is interesting. So, Aru tells you that this man who runs an amusement ride down on Lake Hylia, uh, Fire, or Fier, I call him Fire because it's F-Y-E-R, and calling a guy Fire is just very funny to me. So, Fire, apparently Aru saved his life at some point in the past, so he oh, can't... Oh, Fire because of the cannon. Yeah! Okay, there's our Zelda joke for the episode. Now I can skip the one at the end. Um, oh, God, I may actually have to look one up anyway. Anyway, so you go and you talk to Fire, and you've got a note from Aru, and he's like, okay, well, if he wants me to launch you into the desert, um, I can't guarantee you'll survive, but since he's asking, I can't really refuse him. Let's go. And he aims the cannon way off in the wrong direction and blasts you over the side of the giant pit in which Lake Hylia sits and you sail across an enormous gap and land halfway across the continent in a vast desert. Now, the Gerudo Desert here is interesting compared to the way that it was in Ocarina of Time for a couple of reasons. One, there's nobody in it. There are people. Monster defined people. I'm not counting bulblins. They 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 cook things. They make shelters. Okay. They ride things. Okay. I will uh I'll change They I, talk. I'll take that back. There aren't any fucking Gerudo. Right. Where'd they go? Well, according to our previous episodes, we were trying to discuss whether they went extinct extinct whether they went extinct or whether they retreated deeper into the desert or what have you in any case they sure as hell aren't here right there is a place in the Gerudo desert near to where link lands a hidden grotto that he can go down in and that i believe is the cave of ordeals mm-hmm can you do the Cave of Ordeals now, or do you need more equipment? You can go pretty far, but you need the spinner. Oh, you need the spinner to complete it? At least the spinner. This is very frustrating if you, like Monica, want to do things very early, and then you get all the way down to, I don't know what floor, and then you see the spinner tracks, and you're like, fuck. 
This is also the place in the game, the Cave of Ordeals. The Cave of Ordeals is run by the game's one great fairy. She's pretty. She's very pretty. She's also, like, really naked. Yeah. She's wearing a loincloth, and that's it. She's the most naked character outside of, like, a. she's the most naked human-looking character, I think, in Zelda history. She's also the least creepy big fairy. Really? Isn't she? Why do you say that? Compared to like Ocarina or Majora's Mask. What's wrong with Wind Wind Waker? Waker. Oh, Wind Waker's fairies are great. They're a little bit creepy. What about Breath of the Wild? Up to this point, I love the argumentative. I love the Breath of the Wild. Also, they are unsettling. They are not unsettling. They are wonderful and perfect. You leave them alone. It's a little bit unsettling when they grab you and haul you into the water. You're not wrong. Anyway argumentative motherfucker <laughs> i can't have you saying fucker on this podcast i have to cut that part out too um so we go through and we talk to the great fairy and we do the cave of ordeals and we get stuck because we don't have the spinner and this is very frustrating right, don't do that don't do that if you're playing through twilight princess for the first time uh timed with the episodes that we're airing when you go don't bother going through the cave of ordeals until you finish the next dungeon at least. I can't remember if you need anything else. There might be more, but Monica doesn't remember combat sections or dungeons as well as she remembers story beats. And I haven't played the game in like six or seven years, so I can't remember the gritty details about the Cave of Ordeals. It's not even a combat thing. It's just like you need this item to open the or travel over there. Right, but the Cave of Ordeals is like one extended yeah. combat zone. Yeah. Not your favorite part. Anyway, there's a conversation with Midna shortly after landing. What does she say? I will read it. Wait, Link. Before we go on, there's something I want you to hear. Do you remember what the spirit said about the fused shadows? What do you think happened to the magic wielders who tried to rule the sacred realm? They were banished. They were chased across the sacred lands of Hyrule and driven into another realm by the goddesses. It was another world entirely, the antithesis of Hyrule, where the sun shines bright. Its denizens became shadows that could not mingle with the light. Eventually, most came to call it the Twilight Realm, and from it, none could return to the world of light. They were forever doomed to live in the twilight, flitting in the half-light of dusk, mere shadows of Hyrule. This is the history of the Twilight as it has been passed down from our ancestors. Do you understand? Do you now understand what I am? I love that line. I think, I think that covers the majority of what needs to be gone over from this particular speech. I'm always surprised when she really yells out this part. I am a descendant of the tribe that was banished to the Twilight Realm. Yeah, and she gets real spirited about the rest of it. How things have changed since Sant appeared. How he has some power that's strange to her and isn't known to her people. Oh, here's an, the line that you were looking for. In any case, I was sent from there and could no longer get into the Twilight Realm without Zant's power. Okay, so Zant is actually the one who flung her into the world of light. Mm-hmm. Okay, that makes a certain amount of sense. And that does solve the question of how Midna got to where she did. So, I think we talked about this when we speak to... Nadra? Nadra? Nay. Let's say Nadra for now. It's not Nadra. It's um. Oh hell! 
I'll just say Nadra for the now. Snake spirit. Yeah. Of Nehru. Um. Pharon. No, not Pharon. Um. <laughs> Is that first? No, Pharon, Elden, Nadra. It's Nadra. We're just going to go for Nadra right now. Nadra is the name of the ice dragon in Breath of the Wild. We know, but we can't remember the name of the snake spirit, so we're just going to go with this for right now. It brings up that they chased the Twilight out. As well as it can remember. Yes. Basically, Twilight Princess is arranged around a bunch of unreliable narrators telling interconnected stories that flagrantly and consistently conflict with each other constantly. And it's like, this has been passed down from my ancestors. And there's no reason that their uh, particular version of the story would be less true than the one told by the Conquerors. But it is quantifiably different in multiple ways. Laneru. Laneru. Yeah, Laneru. Okay. Um So what do you make of the fact that they have such different versions of this story? Uh, we we talked before about the possibility that Laneru and the other spirits might not even remember what happened because they don't remember where they got their power from in the context of the other games in the series. Yeah. The only way I can sort of join them together is that effectively, because, well, no, that doesn't even really work out, because... We came to the agreement that the Twilight are probably members of the Demon Tribe from yeah. before Skyward Sword. Right, but also that the three goddesses probably fucked off long ago before that. But even back in Skyward Swords before time, they were known as the Old Gods. Right, no, my interpretation is that all of this is under the authority of the old gods, technically. So you're not leaning into the idea that Nehru might just be an unreliable narrator, even though there's other evidence of that. I'm fine with that too. I think that's probably the way that I would take this, and that nobody knows what the hell they're talking about, but they all speak about it confidently and with a lot of authority. But the chief thing that we get from this is one: Midna's real emotionally invested in getting. Zant out of power and reclaiming her people. Two, we gotta go find the Mirror of Twilight. Also, this is where you learn that Zant turned all of the Twilight into shadow beasts, and you've murdered civilians. Well, I mean, you already knew you were murdering civilians, because some of the shadow beasts were also humans. Oh, yeah. So that well, I mean, others. All of them. That twist doesn't quite strike me as much, because it only makes sense that if some of them turn into beasts, then it must have been that the original were also not beasts at first. They didn't just generate out of nowhere. Or at least that's how I saw it at the time. It is an interesting twist. It caught me off guard. It does mean that Midna's been helping you kill her people. Yeah. She never mentions being conflicted about that, though. You gotta do what you gotta do. That's literally the case here. You very much have to do that. So in order to get into the Arbiter's Grounds, you have to get past some Bulbins. Is this one of your major fights with King Bulbin here, or is it just a bunch of regular-ass Bulbins? Well, first you have to... Hold on. Let me just read this part. Well, first you... In order to even gain access to the place that you shouldn't... The Cave of Ordeals, you can warp the bridge over to where it should be. Yes. The Bridge of Elden. What does the Bridge of Elden allow you to access again? Or is it just you can go back and forth between like Kakariko and Hyrule Field? 
And that allows you to continue with the Mallow Mart quest? Maybe. It's something like that. We can't remember the geography in our heads very well. Feel free to send in corrections about this particular thing. Oh, okay. So, yes. You have to do a sequence where you can sneak around a a Balbin hangout. Right. But we, we get on a board and we murder all of them. Because you got to get on the board to knock down some uh, fences to find a key at some point, right? There's a nice central part, but no, this is there's a part around like some ruins that the Balbin Balbins are inhabiting. Uh huh. I like to think that they're Grudo ruins. Yeah, th- based on their location, that's pretty much the only thing I would think they could be. Um, you again can sneak around and kill all the sentries, and there's a lot of neat spots where you can snipe things. Sniping feels pretty good in this game. It's great. Yeah, you shoot them in the head, they just die. Um, this is where you can also um, slash up a roasting boar and get a heart piece. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Explain that heart piece. Uh, food good. See, this is one of those cases where I think that heart pieces are more representative of the experiences that Link has and how he's growing. And he's never had whole boar before. Here he is. The entire boar. No, no, it's like, no, he hasn't had that experience before. So now he's getting to do this new thing and he feels personally like he's grown from it. Trying new things is good for you. That's very cute. You push at your, you push at your boundaries all the time and you break your limits. How many hearts do you have? By this point, way less than you, I'm sure. Oh, you mean like me personally? Yes. I If I have three hearts, I would be fucking astonished. Really? Yeah. What about you? I hope I have more if they're based off of new experiences. Yeah, but like that three hearts would mean that you're as like as capable of taking punishment as Link is at the start of one of his adventures. Oh, and then we're talking about, like, how much vitality does a heart represent? And that's difficult. I guess everybody has one heart. See, that's 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 one of the first things you would assume, right? But then you get into, like, stupid number discussions, and I think that can be left for a different podcast, not us. But then if you cook things uh, like a durian. What happened? You get very strong. I'm good at cooking. True. And cooking durians is apparently quite easy. You don't even have to take them out of the shell. Or rind, or whatever the hell you call that. Anyway, you probably mostly fight your way through the Bulblin camp. Okay, and then, well, yes, you kill everything. Yeah, you kill You everybody. should kill everything. And then you Why sneak. should you kill them? You say they should. They are there. Uh-huh. Ooh. You were it's just, a stealth sequence. You, you got to ju- murder everyone. You were just talking to me about how these are people. Uh-huh. All right, long as we're consistent. Murder the people, says Monica. You go into a room. Uh-huh. And there's King Bulblin. Is that what happened? Yeah. You fight King Bulblin. And he he punches a boar? Yeah. That's it's, there. It's like he he punches the boar out. Yeah. And then you fight him. And he's got a big axe. He does a lot of damage. He's actually one of the hardest fights in the whole game if you're not familiar with using all the different moves that you can get from the hero's shade up to this point. And this is a third fight with him, right? It's the first fight you have hand to or like one-to-one. The previous two fights were both on opponent. Right. Non-horseback fight. Yeah. This is but a- I mean the third encounter with him. Yes. And he's lost both his horns. Yeah. 
But he's still really tough. He's way tougher on his feet than he was on a boar. Which is interesting. But you beat his... You, you kick his butt. Sure. And then he limps out. And he gives you... I think he gives you a key. No. And then he sets the door and the room Oh, that's fire. right. He, he closes the door and you hear the lock. And Link's like, huh? And then everything is on fire. Yes. Okay, how do you get out? The boar wakes up, and then you ride the boar and smash through a whole bunch of fences. And then you ride the boar, basically, we're just going to say, all the way to the Arbiter's Grounds. Yes. Okay. So, at last, we are in the Arbiter's Grounds. And I know that you have some notes here about it. So, why don't you tell me a little bit about the Arbiter's Grounds? The Arbiter's Grounds are... The Arbiter's Grounds... Is? Are? You can say are. This place is one of those locations in Zelda where you can learn a lot by examining the architecture. How do you mean? Well, firstly, on the outside of the grounds, you you can see that it was built by Hylians. There's symbols of Hyrule all over the outside there are, um, the royal family's crest is pasted all around. Do they have that bird thing? Yeah, the, the wing crest. Yeah. And then there are these giant pillars, and on the top there are the frigging symbols of the sages. Yes. It's a big edifice which just stinks of Hylian architecture, top to bottom. It also looks like a giant coliseum. And then you go inside. Yes. But there's signs of... Well, you shouldn't start it like that. You go inside and you see, again, the wing crest over the main entrance and on the gate as it does the whole pan over to say that it's the Arbiter's Grounds. And you get a sense that bad shit happened here. Very much. There are these giant quicksand whirlpools. Like the sand river that was in Ocarina of Time. And there are little and big skeletons and skulls littered everywhere. Yep, and some of them come to life and try to come get you. Yep, and there are freaking the mummy bugs. The, or Scarabs? Yeah. Mummy bugs. The mummy, like from yeah, the Yeah, from mummy. the mummy. I got it. Believe me. I know what a scarab is, but they don't usually behave like that. They behave like they do in The Mummy, starring Brendan Fraser. Yes. Well, I mean, ew. Yes. <laughs> ew. Not the tunnel kind. Right. Was, yeah, that part was gross. Um, it's interesting because, yes, at, at the entrance to the Arbiter's Grounds, it still very much looks like a Hylian construct with some particularly weird bits in it. As you're near the beginning of the dungeon, you could be forgiven for thinking that Aru's description is accurate and that this is a place that the Hylians built in the Gerudo Desert to house the worst criminals of Hyrule. But... As you go deeper, you start to see that there's a mixture of architectures going on here. Yes. So the the doors, you begin to see that there's a particular design and the particular patterns which 
don't match that of the Hylians. There's even this mark of a horned beast, I'd say. Uh-huh. It looks distinctively Grudo. Yes, I, c- I can see what you mean. But that is an impression that you get more and more the deeper down you go into the dungeon, and that the Hylian architecture starts to fall away, and more and more you see what is recognizably different architecture, or if you're familiar with the Spirit Temple from Ocarina of Time, what is very recognizably Gerudo architecture. Yes. So you see inscriptions on the walls, and they're in a script. Um, Again, not the Hylian language. There's this brush script carved into the ground and on the walls. There are these statues of these men. I guess it's supposed to look Egyptian. Yeah, But probably. one wonders if they're ancient Grudo kings or something to that effect. It would make sense, since this is a Ocarina of Time follow-up. Um, and it, it's particularly in that room where you can tell where the giant lanterns... Um, Lanterns? Torches? These giant torches are that get stolen away by the pose. You can really see where the Hylian architecture is imposed over the older-looking Grudo architecture. That's doubly interesting because it implies... Uh, it doesn't imply shit. The Hylians took a Gerudo holy place and atop it they built a gaol. Or jail. They built a prison. Is it really called gal? gal? Ga- ga- is it always it, just pronounced jail? It's one of those words that I read but don't hear. I agree. Maybe it is just said jail. I th- it's a cool word, though. Yeah. It's cool. I should learn I, how to pronounce it. I do that it. in my head, too. Yeah. Anyway, um, the Hylians did some bad shit here at some point. Uh, and we, we know that later... The impression that you get is that... The Arbiter's Grounds, as we know it, or rather as is facing the surface, was built after the Gerudo Desert was abandoned by the Gerudo, after Ganondorf was defeated, though we find out later that that can't be true. Why is that? Oh, we'll get into it. Okay. Well, okay. Um, here's where you meet the Poes. These goddamn Poes... With the particular bit of the forest temple, the one part of the forest temple that I don't find fun, and the designers of this game said, hey, you know what? We're just going to do this shit again, where Poe steal fire and then run off, and you got to find and kill the Poe's so that we give you a good excuse for running around in wolf form and tearing the souls out of Poe's, and then there's fire. Two things about the Poe's. Okay. One, Midna identifies them as male. Huh. Does she? Yes. She says, him. About a Poe. Oh, interesting. Huh, I wonder if that's more just a reflection of her assumptions concerning their gender. Maybe. Who knows? Because there's Poes everywhere, and they're not necessarily related to the Gerudo. Right. They're very different looking Poes, though. See, it's... I don't think that Poes in this game are actually souls of the dead. Right, they're not. Yeah, they're like little imp demons. Well, who knows about these four? They look very different. Fair enough. Um, also, why do they have a piece of... That guy's soul. I uh, maybe they're collect. Oh, maybe they're collectively. Li- Wait, they like these four poses have four pieces. Yeah, you get a part of Giovanni's soul. Jesus Christ! I forgot that part. Yeah, that's the part that you have to rip it out of them. 
So the Poes in this game actually seem like they're not they're not creatures in and of themselves, and they're not the souls of the dead running around. Poes in this are just fragments of Giovanni. I thought he made a deal with the Poes. He made a deal with some kind of demon, I think. But we can come back to it. The point is that his soul constitutes their life force. Oh, I thought you just killed them. <laughs> no, they only die when you rip his soul out of them. True. Well, that's an interesting read. Which, yeah, it just implies to me that Giovanni himself is tied to the Poes and who they are and what they are. So let's say you you have to go through a whole bunch of shit to hunt down these Poes. And can I just stop for a second and talk about how horrible the little skeletons are? Yeah. Like, there's a bit in Dark Souls, which is very much like this, where you're attacked by skeletons. There's a whole crypt that's just full of skeletons in Dark Souls. And there's a particular place near the end of this crypt that is full of what are plainly the skeletons of children. And I don't mean that they're like tiny versions of adult skeletons. I mean they're proportioned like children. And this game, thankfully, doesn't go that fucking far. It's just that some of the skeletons are really, really tiny, and it's not actually super clear why. All of the skeletons, though, their skulls are not human. They're not. It's very disturbing. It kind of looks like a helmet or something. Yes, they look Only very... it's a skull. They look... They have these big uh, crests on top of their skulls that lean backward or forward or which way I can't quite remember. And their jaws are also shaped very differently from human jaws with much more prominent uh, eye teeth. It's... I don't know. I, what are these supposed to be? What are Stalfos in this setting? Because most of the time when you see Stalfos, you go, aha... That is the skeleton of a person. Even in Wind Waker, where they were enormous and weird, you just go, okay, that's just Wind Waker being Wind Waker. But in this case, it's like, what? What What are these? Yeah. Were these monsters that were fielded by Ganondorf in the Old War? You also meet Redeads here. Oh, piss off, Redeads. The Redeads in this game are kind of creepy. Uh, yeah, but they're also, in some ways, very cool. Yes. They have swords. Giant stone swords just big fuck off swords that they hit you with there are also ghost rats here ghost rats i actually forgot about that and these aren't like twilight realm spirit ghosts because you're never in the twilight while you're running around in the arbiter's grounds these are literally just the ghosts of rats and if you're running around as link you might find yourself walking very slowly with no clear reason why. And then mid if you're Wolf Link, Midna will start freaking out. And you'll go, what the hell is happening? And then you switch over to your Twilight Senses, and you're just covered in ghost rats. That was so unsettling. Yeah, Monica, like hives. Monica doesn't like that part. It made her itchy. Itchy on her actual living skin. Yeah. It's not good. Uh, you got ghost rats. You got, like, cool redeads that you have to fight. And they're actually an interesting fight instead of just being sort of throwaway like they are in Wind Waker or Ocarina of Time. Going back to the architecture, here's also where you notice this repeating design of this giant demon on the wall. When you say here, where do you mean? I mean, venturing further past the lanterns. Okay. Uh, well, not la not past the lanterns, but into the side rooms. Going after the pose. Yes. Um, this large demon form alongside a smaller person with a shield. And this is a motif that is in murals on the walls? Yeah. Oh, I don't remember that very well. 
It's a very interesting design. There's also a pattern that recurs, and it kind of looks like Ganondorf, Sash, and Wind Waker only looping the other way. Looping. Squiggling bits, yes. Looping the other way. Could that be because the textures are all flipped? You know, maybe. In the Wii version? Actually, let's check this. I think I was looking at an HD version, though. Okay, if it's the HD version, then it's running the other way on purpose. But anyway, it's it's notable. Yes. Are we about to the mid-boss? Yes. Okay. Well, as you approach it, you come across approach one what? of the mid-boss. Mm-hmm. You come across signs of the spinner. Oh, yes. You've got the thing where there's like... Um, there's places on the walls that have indentations in them where the teeth of a gear might go along. Right. And you come across a statue of the Gerudo goddess of the sands. And it's explicitly and definitely the goddess of the sands. Yep. She's got like the snake thing going on and everything. Yep. Which does more or less confirm that this was a place of at least occasional worship, but it reads like an extremely holy place. Because you get the impression going through it that this isn't a prison, it's a crypt. Yes. Um, and then the mid-boss. Okay. So this mid-boss is legitimately, lore-wise, one of my absolute favorite things in Twilight Princess, bar none. Why don't you break it down for our listeners now, it's been a little while since i've played so i might have some of the details imperfect but as you enter into a big room you see that there is a large sword standing in the middle of the room with its blade buried in the sand and hanging from the walls there are strings tied from the sword's handle out onto the walls, hundreds and hundreds of them, and each of them is covered in charms. And it's not clear what the charms are, but you get the impression that they're charms meant to ward off a curse or to keep away bad spirits. Here's the part I'd want to point out that in the circle on the ground around the sword is pretty much a third type of script. It's a lot more... um, She's doing a motion with her hands. More cursive. It looks markedly different from what I'm assuming is the Grudo modern script and the Hylian script. Right. This is ancient. Very old. Very old script. Circling around the sword. So you've come into a room where somebody has set up protections against something, and it's something fucking bad. So what do you do? You fuck with the sword. Because it's the only way to solve a particular puzzle is to set... I can't forget the exact reasons for it, but I believe you set fire to the charms, and it burns away all of them. And when you do that... I think you slash one of the ropes. A bad spirit is released. And this bad spirit is doubly interesting. It has this great skull for a head, which looks sort of like a goat, I guess. 
But that's not the really interesting bit of it. The really interesting bit of it is that it's wearing black robes that are very similar in their design and the patterning and the, what do you call the bits on the outside? The hems? No, no, it's like what would you would have on the hems? The um, Embroidery? It's It's embroidery. And it's embroidery. All of these things come together. These robes are very similar to the robes that Ganondorf wears in The Wind Waker. Yes. And the sword that this creature carries is not identical, but very similar in its design to Gerudo's swords from throughout the series. It doesn't look exactly like the sword that Ganondorf carries in the Space World 2001 demo, but or was that 2000? But, you know, it has its similarities in its design. There are certain motifs that are repeating here. So what are you saying, Cameron? Bring it all together. I'm saying that that motherfucker is an old bad Gerudo king. And whatever he was, he was so bad that practitioners of Gerudo magic, who are well known to be terrible motherfuckers in their own right, had to seal him away. And that by itself makes this one of the coolest untold stories in Twilight Princess by a million billion miles. Because here we have proof of a Gerudo king before Ganondorf. The first Gerudo king who's not Ganondorf and also uh, just happens to be super fucking evil. Yeah. You hate this boss fight. (laughs) (laughs) You had to bring that part up. No, I mean, you do. Do you want me to tell this story? No, not the whole story, but talk about the parts of the boss fight you don't like. I can't even remember. I didn't know how to f- attack him effectively in a particular stage. Uh, but that it, didn't that hold true even in your HD playthrough? Like some, I part? may have forgotten how, again, to beat it. Again, Monica doesn't tend to remember her combat experiences as much as she does her lore experiences, so I may have made a mistake in bringing this up in the first place. But this is one of the sequences in Twilight Princess that probably left the worst impression on Monica. Um, but You don't no, want to hear this story? No, not really. Okay. I mean, it's a cool fight. Yes. It's a cool fight with a really cool character, and you kill him with your teeth. This is another one of those fights where a wolf link has to jump onto someone and just tear at them, just tear at them over and over and over, and it feels really good when you do it. And they set this up specifically so that the fight functions in such a way that you can't really attack the boss very much with the master sword, which sort of fits because it's so evil-seeming that it's almost like the master sword would kill it quite quickly. But, uh, yeah, Death Sword. I was going to bring that up. The uncoolest part about this mini-boss is its name. Death Sword. That sounds like a a metal band. I was going to say that it sounds like a Power Rangers villain. No, they wouldn't use the word death. Yeah. Yeah. What were you thinking? What was I thinking? Not enough about Power Rangers, apparently. When you kill Death Sword, he dissolves into this wave of pestilence. Oh yeah, it's like he it's like he turns into like locusts and shit. Like that's the he that ghost is like a serious grudge ghost. That is a curse. That is a curse ghost. It bad. Yeah. It mm, 
You don't want that ghost. That's it's a good thing you killed that ghost, but you still shouldn't have cut those strings. You you silly man. Is it after this that you get the spinner? Yes. Okay. That well, I mean, you beat him and you get the item, right? Yeah. yeah. Well, is that how? It doesn't matter. Sometime after you get past Death Sword, who has the silliest name, but probably the coolest design of any mid boss in the game. He uh, was still interred here. He was. It, oh, so it's almost like after he was interred, they they used his sword to put a seal on the bad spirit in case he came back, and then he did. Yeah. Or is it like he came back from the dead first? Yeah, probably that, actually. That's interesting, because this is one of the only cases in the game where you get an instance of a bad magic that has absolute not, absolutely nothing to do with the power of either the Triforce of Power or the Twilight Realm. None, nothing of the main sources of evil in this game have anything to do with Death Sword. Death Sword is just there, and it would be there regardless of what else was going on. Why'd you fuck with it, Link? He had to get that spinner. Okay. And then you get the spinner, and I think the spinner is pretty easily the most popular item that Twilight Princess produced. Yeah. Pretty fun item. Aside from the ball and chain. No, I think the spinner is actually the one that people will mention most often as being their favorite, even past the ball and chain. It is very wacky. And I wish they had gone all the way and just made you able to spin across Hyrule. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The way the the way that the spinner works is that it's essentially like this top that has a non-rotating segment that Link stands on. And it's rimmed in teeth, like teeth from a gear that lets it latch onto these paths and spin Link across the landscape. And if it's latched onto a track, then it goes at really high speed. And you can use it outside of a track, but it loses speed very quickly in those instances. And the best thing would be if the spinner was just like, it's faster than Epona, but if it was just faster than Epona like all the time. Yeah, but they didn't want you to not use your horse and ride a top across Hyrule. So then they made it so that after like 20, 20 meters, yeah. 20 feet, 20 meters, <laughs> 20 meters, it I, slows I, down. I don't think it's that far. Okay, 20 feet, 10 meters. It stops and it sucks. Yeah. This is why I don't really like the spinner. Yeah, because it's not really useful outside of these specific sequences. And it's fun having the spinner zip you along because the tracks for it go all around these really big elaborate rooms and up the sides of the statue of the goddess of the sand. And you go flying all over the place. And you do funny bounces. It's like a roller coaster. Yeah. It's almost exactly a roller coaster. It even sounds sort of like a roller coaster. Yeah. But it's fun. It's fun, and they don't use it enough. And they don't let you use it enough. And I think that's... Is there anything else lore-wise we really want to cover for the Arbiter's Grounds? We've got the whole thing going on with how it was clearly a Gerudo holy place that was taken over by the Hylians, and they started building this jail on top of a crypt, and I can't imagine anything more horrific. It's kind of rude. Rude. Yes, rude is a good word for when we don't want to use more powerful words. It's kind of an act of... We'll call it cultural erasure. Yeah. Yeah. Instead of reaching into the bag of big words. Um, So we've covered pretty much everything in the Arbiter's Grounds that matters. Ghosts, bad spirits, skeletons, 
there's a lot of bad things that went on here. It's a history of blood that a prison is built on top of, and it's not clear what caused that blood to be spilled, but whatever it was, it was very bad. Well, maybe it was the Hylians building over a freaking crypt. Yeah, that's one of the things that you would think, right? But, you know, we have reason to assume here that the, um, that the Hylians would have built it after the war was over, right? Yeah. Except that, that can't be the case. But we'll talk about that, I think, next episode. Um, Are we coming up on... Well, we're, we've been going for an hour and 20 minutes. It'll oh. come. It'll be a little bit shorter once I finish editing. But we can talk about the boss real quick. Yeah. People love this boss. Stalord. You get into this big room, and Zant is there. It's like, hey, Zant, I've been tracking your stink throughout this entire temple. Because at the start of the temple, or the Arbiter's Grounds, you can start tracking Zant's scent, and that's one of the things that leads you down critical paths. Really? Throughout the- yes, absolutely. Do you not remember this? No. You yeah. track the post scent. You don't track Zant. Okay, maybe it's Zant. Or the- <laughs> maybe it's the pose. I don't... It, I, I thought it was tracking Zant's stink, but it actually being the pose makes more sense because they all run off and you have this conceit that you're supposed to find them. You, Re- can de- you can delete this part. No, no, I'm keeping it. Anyway, so you're like, Zant, I've been tracking your stink the whole way, though you haven't. <laughs> and Zant's like, aha, I am the bad guy and you are a fool. And I guess Midna's here too. Well... Goodbye, and then he gives a huge amount of evil power over to this huge dragon fucking skull that he's standing on top he of. He drives a sword into its skull. Oh, yeah, it's like this really sick sword. But the skull is also already covered in swords and spears and shit. Yes. Like, whatever this was in the Arbiter's grounds was some kind of beast, maybe a guardian beast, and it looks like those are all Hylian weapons in its head. One of the things that the Hylians did was come down here and kill this thing. Yeah. Which is fucked. What was it doing? It was probably important. And now it's back as an angry skeleton beast. And Link has to fight it. And he mostly fights it on the spinner. And this is a part that a lot of players really like. Fighting uh, Stalord with the spinner. Because Stalord is partially buried. And only its upper torso sticks out above the ground. But it's a tremendous thing. The span of its arms has to be in the range of like... 30 or 35 meters it's huge and the arena is this enormous circular thing and Stalord is in a pit of sand and all around the arena you have a track for the spinner and you go around it at extremely high speeds and you launch off with the attack button you fly down and you hit Stalord in its spine with the spinner because the spinner has an attack move when you press that button again and you bounce off at high speed after doing damage to it And then you get back on the track and you repeat it again. And this part of the fight is given increasingly greater amounts of complexity because Stalord starts summoning um, Redeads. Are they Redeads? It might just be Skelemans. I interpreted that as like the bodies of the soldiers that fought it. That could work, I guess. Reanimated. But but I mean, Redeads are definitely corpses. Redeads aren't like Poe's. They're dead people. Yeah. It occurs to me, now that Breath of the Wild has come out, and you mentioned that Hylian soldiers fought Stalord, it's theoretically possible that 
the old Gerudo king wasn't sealed by the Gerudo and maybe wasn't that malignant to begin with because the the seals is let's get real here it's japanese seal charms yeah but it also shows up in imagery of the sheikah and breath of the wild uh those charms are like that yes what but i mean the sheikah were very much assassins for the hylian royal family but on the other hand that script that's written around the sword yeah. is definitely not highly in script. Yeah. It, it reads to me as if it was sealed away long ago by ancient Gerudo. Like yeah. Kotake and Koome may have done that shit on their own. Maybe for consistency to say cut out this part then. Why? I don't know. I don't think it's worth it to bring up a dead virgin point. I think it's fine. Okay. Yeah, it's totally fine. That's that's this whole podcast. I like consistency. I know, but we've never managed to do it in all these episodes. Um, so you you end up breaking Star-Lord's spine, and you go past all these Redeads or Skelemans, and eventually you manage to destroy the whole thing, and it collapses in on itself, and all the sand starts to drain out, as the only thing left of it is its skull. And you're like, all right, I win, except there's no heart container. And then the skull comes alive and starts flying around surprise surprise fool and then you have to ride on another track that goes around this raised tower that the sinking sand has left behind and you have to kind of chase it and jump back and forth between different fireballs and jump into it and hit it with the spinner and this is the really cool part of the fight to me because it's so high speed and you actually have to react to things fast it's great it's really good this is probably the coolest part of what is to many people the coolest boss fight in the entire game it's really good and you manage to kill the style lord by hitting it in the face a few more times and it finally collapses and it shatters and you get your heart container and that's how you know it's really finally over and you ride the spinner track all the way up to the top of the tower and then you exit into the heart of the arbiter's grounds and i think that might actually be a good spot to stop for right now i think i'd like to have crystal around for the uh okay next sequence sure did you have more that you wanted to say no i'm just gonna mark off where we stopped okay because, I mean, we, we've been going for a little bit here. Regardless, uh, yeah, we've gone through uh, the Arbiter's Grounds and the whole thing leading up to it. You know, the lead-up sequence for the Arbiter's Grounds was actually much shorter than the last few. Yeah. Uh, we kept at it a little bit just because there was some dialogue that we like to read. And we spent a little bit of time before getting into the lore uh, or the description of a particular dungeon. But this is the start of the part of the game where the gap between dungeons shrinks enormously. And it can still take a lot of time because moving around in the environment in Twilight Princess can take a lot of time. And some of the mini games that they give you can take a lot of time. But generally speaking, there's less run from point A to B to C to D to filler. E. Yeah. Re- I, mandatory filler. I guess you could call it less filler content. That feels a little bit uncharitable but at the same time it's also completely earned so i'm going to leave that the way it is shall we take a question let's do questions okay monica where can people send questions to the podcast cam you just clicked away from the email which i don't memorize the email for any long form questions 
can be sent to bookofmedorapodcast at gmail.com. That's bookofmedorapodcast at gmail.com. You can also send questions to me on Twitter at CamWriter or to Crystal at ArcaneCrystal. Now, we've got a few emails to get through today. We won't be able to get through all of them. Yeah, there's a chunk. I like the title of the second one. Well, it's not really the second one. We're starting way down here. What? Really? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Ooh, wow. Yeah. Okay. So I'll read this first email. And this email comes from Jasmine. And Jasmine writes, So one of the people I watched on YouTube is Alexandra. And she's been playing a bunch of randomized and co-op Link to the Past runs. A friend of a friend streamed an experimental hybrid Link to the Past Super Metroid randomizer ROM. Turns out the games are almost mutually exclusive, so you can move between each somehow. It's cool. My question is, do you have any interest in playing modified versions of games like Master Mode or the modding scene with Breath of the Wild and the above randomizer runs? And do you want to pull some... TWA theme justification for their hypothetical occlusion in the Zelda multiverse. Is that uh, Teenagers with Attitude? Unfortunately, I don't really get the reference. I'm sorry, I don't listen to Teenagers with Attitude. Um, Firstly, I do have interest in playing some mods. The, like the Link to the Past randomizers, just in case there are any of our listeners who aren't familiar with this concept, is you take Link to the Past... Link to the Past, the third game in the Legend of Zelda series, and you play a modified version of it so that every time you can get an item, it's completely randomized. Like any chest that you open or any time a character gives you an item, say if you're buying something from King Zora, it's a completely random what you might get. So you might give King Zora 500 rupees and get a blue rupee back. Or you might open the first chest in the game and get the Master Sword. Things like that. They're, now, it's set up so that you can't be completely locked out of progressing, but it does lead to some particular situations where you might have to search around a lot to get the genuinely necessary items. I thought it was randomized in that when you go out of a room, it's completely random as to which room you enter into. No, that would be well and truly difficult to engage with in a fun way. This is more of a chest randomization. Oh, which is fun in its own way because you can do things like get the magic cape straight out of the box or end up with the moon pearl or all sorts of things. Regardless, um, those are fun. I don't think I know Link to the Past well enough to engage in that particular part of the mod scene. But things like the Breath of the Wild mods, shit yes. Those are awesome. Have you seen the one where Link is running around in like this big white gown? It looks really good. Or where you play a Zelda. That Zelda playable mod for Breath of the Wild is so expansive and cool. Holy shit. They've changed... They've got a fucking part of that. In case anybody isn't clear on what we're talking about, people take the ROM for the Wii U version of Breath of the Wild and they make mods for it as one does with PC games that modify the game as you play them. And in Breath of the Wild, you can get classic Link tunics using Amiibo. And instead of the Skyward Sword Link tunic, when you play a Zelda, you get the outfit that Zelda wore in Skyward Sword. So you're running around as Skyward Sword Zelda, and that's fucking sick. 
Yeah, it's incredible. And a part of me really, really wishes they would go far enough to totally rewrite the script. Yeah. Because that's my interest in in stories changing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not so much in different play styles. I don't really care about play styles. But, like, what if, you know, Link was the one battling Ganon for a hundred years and Zelda was put to sleep, you know, for those hundred years. And now she get, she awakens and she has to go and save him. Well, that ending would be so different, though, because you get there and Link would be, like, a hundred and fifteen years old. Like, genuinely. He's because just, in your mind, he's not attacking or fighting Ganon spiritually. He's fighting Ganon <laughs> nonstop for a hundred years. I don't know about that. How okay. fucking sick would that be, though? Yeah. Anyway. But, but I mean, it's just all the interactions. The, the fanfic writing side of me is just so engaged with that. Yes. Can you imagine Zelda waking up and not recognizing her father and the interactions there? Oh, that would be such a good set of conversations. Yes. Oh, man. And did Zelda might actually need to talk, though. Maybe. Maybe. We'd have to think about that. But uh, but these mods appeal to me in the same way that any transformative fan work appeals to me. Just in some ways even more intensely because I really like playing video games. And the idea that fans can take parts of the games that they're not particularly satisfied with and just fix them. Wow. That's out there. Like you could just say like, oh, Link doesn't have enough feminine coded clothing to play with so let's give him this cool dress or let's give him like zelda's outfit or whatever the hell it doesn't matter it's like and or just make you play a zelda and you just let you play a zelda and then everybody you run into can like the zora can know that it's definitely zelda and like, like oh the rito kind of recognize the familiarity i guess but maybe she's a descendant well, they, they, they somehow haven't, they and, haven't changed that part but regardless um if you're at all interested in seeing a really cool fan project that does a lot more than you would expect people to be able to do with the rom for a wii u game do a search for breath of the wild zelda playable mod and i'm sure you will find something something real cool but yeah, those are sick. Yeah, we're totally interested in that sort of thing, Jasmine. There's no doubt. Oh, man. I love the mod scene that exists around Zelda games, at least partially because it's a testament to how effective people find them, but also because it can address a lot of the things that I find problematic in the games themselves. Why don't you go turn on that lamp? You're including that part? No. Now, Monica, why don't you read this next one? Okay, this next one is by Maurice. How do y'all feel about Nintendo establishing a dichotomy between the power of the goddesses, uh, Triforce, Master Sword, Zelda, etc., and the innate energy belonging to all mortal beings and the natural that can be transcribed into power, Force Gems, Four slash Force Sword, etc.? The Light Force has been speculated on here that it's the power of the goddess, but in Japan, it's known only as Force, and has also been either stated or speculated to be a great mass collection of the living Force, happiness, within all beings, of which the Pecori had hoarded and then gifted. This dichotomy is further reinforced in Spirit Tracks, where the power of the old gods are gone, and only spirits of the natural world and Force gems remain. It's an interesting take on it, though, because... I think that in some ways Zelda lore is set up so that you don't see a dichotomy between the natural and the supernatural, so to speak. 
because there are certain Zelda games where it's made very explicit that pretty much everything comes from the Triforce. But reading it to interpret the natural with the divine is very interesting. Yes, that is an aspect. A very good lit crit reading. Yes, it is. That is uh, that is definitely something that you can take from it because there are definitely powers that are aside from the Triforce throughout the series, or at least there seems to be. But even in something like the DS games, um, I'm currently playing through Phantom Hourglass, and I've just done a part of the Temple of the Ocean King where you need to collect Force Gems and slot them into a puzzle. And of course, the Force Gems have to be arranged in the shape of the Triforce. Hmm. But it is interesting, the idea that there is a collective force that's being carried around and was gathered up by the Peekery. I don't know how that translates in terms of, like, gifting it and it passing through the bloodline of Zelda. This is a particular bit of lore building that keeps coming up again and again when we're dealing with what I think of as the Vati games. Mm-hmm. Because that particular method of storytelling, or maybe it's the Force Gem games. Though there weren't four stems in Minish Cap, were there? No. Okay. I want to make sure. Regardless, uh, it comes up mostly in the storytelling of the Vati games. I guess in some ways this is Fujibayashi's fault. Um, It would be right to say that there are powers outside of the Triforce Gods. Because the concrete role that the Triforce Gods play in the existence of the world is very much nebulous and not well understood. There is a version of the origin of the world told to us in Ocarina of Time where it suggested that all life is derived from Faror. Yeah. So all living things and the power within them would be derived from her. Right. But I don't know that I necessarily buy into that. There's enough room here. This is what you, I think, is kind of key to understanding Zelda lore is that sources are, are sometimes wrong or inaccurate. Almost always, even. Almost always. <laughs> so that, you know, don't... Take every, take every story with a grain of salt. And you can interpret them however you please. But it needs to be remembered that sometimes you're not going to be able to reconcile them as cleanly as you would like to. But yeah, the dichotomy uh, between nature versus the supernatural, I would say that it plays around with that a lot. I don't know that it's necessarily something that the series comes down on hard. But that's a very good read on that, Maurice. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, now this listener question is from Daniel. Hi, I was thinking, would you ever be interested in discussing Bionicle lore in some bonus episodes? It's just rife with weird lore and was a childhood interest of mine. Holy shit, I can't believe that I read this email on the one episode where Crystal isn't here. Let's cut this and then hold off to the next time. Um, Daniel, we're going to read this uh, question again when Crystal's here because I think Crystal actually does know Bionicle. Uh, That's the thing that she was into when she was a kid. So we're going to come back to this. So... Instead, uh, I'm going to read the one last email from Shakal Draconis. Hello, crew. I wanted to share my take on the scene where Link meets Zelda, as I seem to read the scene quite differently to the, from those on the podcast. I didn't see Link's reaction to seeing Zelda as changing because she was a pretty woman, but because she was a woman. 
Since getting dragged into the twilight, Link has come face to face with a huge flat face monster. Painfully transformed into a wolf, passed out, been imprisoned, had an imp riding him like a horse, seen the ghostly spirits of Hylian guards, and been screamed at and fought huge monster birds. When Zelda turned around, and she was just a normal woman, I took it as him being relieved. Finally, someone normal, maybe she can help me. <laughs> also, in terms of why Zelda wasn't transformed by the Twilight, I don't think it was because of the Triforce, as we see later Ganon is transformed like Link was, into big, angry, face, fire-face sphere thing. I took it as it was the blood of the goddess that protected her, and it's that protection, basically the power of the moon pearl, to not be harmed, altered by the innate nature of other worlds, that she transfers to Midna later, so that the light world stops killing the imp. For the first part, yeah, I, 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 I could see that. That's a that's a great interpretation. It's like, it's like oh, thank God, a human. <laughs> in fact, I think that I, like, did I slightly push back a little against that, oh, pretty girl thing that you a and Crystal... Yeah, yeah, okay. Good. So is this now you're in, you're going to adopt that, this interpretation? Yeah, that's mine. Shakala and I are on the same page with... I was like, oh, thank goodness. Oh, my God, a person. <laughs> Minna's reaction is pretty funny there, too. Like, I'm a person. No. Get out of here, Minna. Or it's like just... Uh, at that point, I think Midna is more amused by his relief than yeah. anything. As to the second part, um, I think it's actually pretty explicit that it's the Triforce that does this protecting. Because, I mean, like... Yes, Link is still transformed in spite of having the Triforce. But Ganondorf's transformations don't have anything to do with the Triforce. In fact, he's able to force transformations on people. It's the light of the twilight via Ganondorf that forces people's bodies into other shapes. It's his power, not the Twilight Realm itself. You'll notice that because Midna talks about how the magic that was jammed into Link's head is not Twilight magic. It's completely separate from the magic of her tribe. Which means that it is the power of Ganondorf through the Triforce of Power exercised through the light of the twilight that makes that light transform people into ghosts or into beasts. And the comment of Xan transforming the twilight into into the shadow, shadow beasts. beasts. Yes. So yeah. that's very that and I think it's very much a case where the Triforce of Wisdom provided protection but the Triforce of Courage did not. Now, one point that Shakal brings up here is that Ganondorf transforms into a big screaming fiery head. And that's true. But it's not actually the Twilight Realm that does that because he does the same thing when he's defeated as uh, Dark Beast Ganon at the end of this game. Never mind the fact that he turns into Dark Beast Ganon. Yeah, of his own power without the Twilight being around. Yeah. And that's it. And Link can go into the Twilight as much as he likes after this and not be transformed into a beast. Like, he literally goes into the Twilight Realm and is not turned into a wolf. It's only when he comes across the very concentrated shadow mag magic that hangs on the floor like smoke that he can be forcibly transformed again. Anyway, that's how I see that. That's a good read on that, Shakal. Thank you for sending in that email. Um, I think maybe I have a slightly different read of what it is that give, confers the protection upon Zelda. Uh, the idea that she passes on the power of the goddess Hylia does skew a lot closer to people who suggest that Midna's carrying around Zelda's soul, basically. 
That's a oh a much heavier gift. Yeah, it is. Well, I mean, the Triforce. Pretty heavy. Yeah, but... Pretty heavy. I guess. They're both heavy, but... Divinity? Divinity is pretty big. But, I mean, like, the Triforce is way bigger than just being a god. I guess. Anyway, I think that's about it for today. Okay. So... What does Crystal usually say here? We we repeat the email. Oh, yes. And again, if you would like to send in letters to the podcast, please send them to bookofmedorapodcast at gmail.com. Again, that is bookofmedorapodcast at gmail.com. You can listen to this and many other podcasts on the Audio Entropy Podcast Network. Let's see. Our podcast art is done by Tor Kirby at www.torkirby.com. He'll good draw. Job. He'll draw you things if you give him money. Um, We're doing good here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, shall we mention a podcast that is on the Audio Entropy Network? Uh huh. Um, one of the podcasts on the Audio Entropy Network. Uh, MCU Complete Me is Crystal's new podcast where she and Luke get together and discuss the merits of the Marvel Cinematic Universe movies in order. I believe that they have already recorded Iron Man and The Incredible Hulk. And I don't know where they've gone from there, but I'm sure they've done some more things. Uh, I need to check on that, actually. And I think that's it. Do you want to hear a Zelda joke? Yes. Okay, hold on. You can't look at the screen. I'm covering my eyes. Are there no Twitter questions? Well, I didn't put up a Twitter question post. There's nothing in the document. Oh, shit. We forgot about the document, guys. Piss. Okay, I can't pull it up right now, so we'll come back to that. Um, no questions. No questions. Um, okay. Okay. I, I, most of, uh, okay. Uh, here is a Zelda joke by a user called Princess Ruto at uh, Northcastle.co.uk. Well, anyway. Oh, Northcastle. Do we? Do you know Northcastle? Yes. What is it? This is a Zelda fan site with. I think it posted a lot of the manga and doujinshi. Oh, uh, so this is old school, you know this. Yes. Side, which makes sense, given what this looks like and what some of these jokes are. I think it was primarily Z-Link. It was great. Okay. Oh, sure. Fuck. Um, so, how do you drive a Goran to distraction? How? You give him a bag of M&Ms and ask him to alphabetize them. I'm making fun of Goran's uh-huh. intelligence. Yeah, it is. I thought this was going to be something like you put it on a very high slope and you give it a, a, a wheel and then you it rolls down the hill and it's driving. Why? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. Can you explain that? Like, you know, Goran's roll. Uh-huh. And you give it a... A steering wheel, uh-huh. and then it's like it's driving. Wait, what if four Gorons roll at the same time, and you set like a little framework for a car on top of them, and they're driving? 
do you attach them to like an axle or? No, they're just coordinated rolling. And then you set a signpost at the bottom of the mountain and it says distraction. So they're driving to distraction. But I'm dish. Okay, goodbye. <laughs> goodbye.